Welcome to Credibly Curious. I'm Saskia. I'm Nick. And we're back. Yay. Yeah. Here we are. How are you? Nick? I'm good. How are you? Um, I'm really good. Hmm. Wonderful. So what are we talking about today? So today I think we're going to talk about Sweef, Knitter and Markdown. Yep. Um, and Sounds good. Both have done some research, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> some yeah. last minute research. I don't know. We've done heaps of research, right? No, please, if we miss anything or we miss anyone in particular, please let us know. Um, but yeah, I guess we want to talk about this because we just want to clear up, you know, how is Knitter different to Sweeve, if you've heard of that? Is Knitter different to our Markdown? What are notebooks and what are the extensions and. All these sorts of things we thought it'd be good to talk okay, about. Can I start with a confession? A confession. All yeah, right. so I've only these are your confessions. <laughs> these are my confessions. New podcast, guys. Yeah. Um, no. So the confession is that I am a recent convert to our markdown, as every time in this podcast it seems. It's like I'm a recent convert to Tidyverse and I'm a recent convert to um, our markdown. So I don't actually know. So you can you have the task of actually educating me about Knitter, sweep, and um, our markdown. So, can we start with the differences and the historical perspective that yeah. you prepared so nicely for us? Yeah, sure. So, I think uh, historically, then, uh, okay, let me go with a note. <laughs> I've, been, I've been reading Yue She's uh, thesis called Dynamic Graphics and Reporting for Statistics, and it's actually a really good read. That reading. does not sound like it's about knitter, does it? Oh, like, no, but then you read it and you're like, how could it not be about knitter? And it, it's yeah, great. but like from the start of it, you're like, oh, this sounds like it's about graphics. Yes, well, it's about, it's, a, it's about you know, just to get a little bit off track, but it's about three things. It's about how statistics itself is, is quite a dynamic thing, uh, or the processes, and so it talks about animation um, with the animation package, interactivity with an R package called Cranvis, and then dynamic documents with NIDAR. So he like covers three awesome topics, right? He did a lot, mm. apparently, during his PhD. How long did he take? Do you know? I got no idea, actually. Um, the, it was published in 2013, so... And, of course, yeah. he now works for our studio. Yeah. Yes, and he's still developing awesome things. Yes, and writing a lot. Um, documentation, I'll, yes. Yeah, and, and also his blog. I'd really recommend checking out his blog. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes as yeah, always. Um, but yeah, I digress. Um, so basically, if you want to go back to the historical points, um, so the idea of a uh, R Markdown document or a NIDAR document or whatever you want to call it is stemming from this idea from Donald Knuth called literate programming, which is that you put your text and your code all together in one... Readable document. One readable document. So that like it's... So basically, <coughs> you make documentation easier. Instead of having these awful um sort of comments in your in your file that no one ever reads and that are very very short and that don't make any sense you actually have descriptive text around what you're coding exactly. is that the idea yeah so you have your text and the code and its output all together in in one single document um and so this idea was picked up by frederick uh Leisch is how I believe I say his name. Uh, that's absolutely correct. As uh, okay. a German, yeah? wonderful. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. So, base, so he made S-Weave or Sweave. Um, and this was a great literate programming interface to R. And that was from 2002. So it was actually pretty early on in the piece. Yeah. So mm. you, people might have seen it when they go into their um, 
I guess, setup of their RStudio, like into the into the options you might have seen Sweeve there, yeah. and we probably otherwise wouldn't have come across it. Yeah, these that's days. right. Yeah, it's um, it it's actually pretty interesting because it's actually baked into R itself, so it's in the utils package, so it comes with base R. So it's pretty interesting, I think, from that perspective that R has little programming kind of baked in to it already. Even though I mean, yeah, yeah, and if we think about the packages, of course, then we it's not exactly literate programming, but there was a big emphasis mm. on documentation there, which I like we discussed this earlier. We think is mm. done with Swift. We're not entirely sure. Yeah, so if you've ever seen those um, the standard PDF that gets built for a lot of our projects um, or an an R package, then we're pretty sure that that <laughs> manual page is generated with um, Swift and Otherwise, the vignettes can be, but they don't have to be. Um, but an important thing is that Sweeve only generates PDF. Yes. And it only really handles LaTeX. And so this was one of the, the reasons for a new tool to get created. Uh, and yeah, so and that's, that tool hmm. is Knitter? Yes, that's right. So Sweeve had a bunch of add-on packages. So I'm pretty sure actually Roger Peng wrote some say, uh, to handle caching and that sort of thing with Sweeve. But then, we'll talk about what caching is later. Yes, yeah, we will. So there are these basically extra features that people could add, but it, it was a little bit tricky. Um, it and you had more to know work. LaTeX, of course, which is not the easiest language. So I wrote my PhD thesis in LaTeX, and while I'm I'm a big fan of LaTeX, but it did mean that I had to like fiddle around, probably I would say a good week with getting things into the shape and form that they needed to be in or that I wanted them to be in. Like you mm. get really distracted by prettifying your document and that probably distracts you from actually writing good yes. stuff. But it does, I will say, it does feel really good to write a really nice document though. Like when there's like <laughs> all that beautiful white space and, you know, it just feels... Like yeah, but if you want to do anything that is not the like super standard LaTeX sure, template, yep, like yep. I did for my PhD thesis, mm. you end up spending an awful long time, like just find like looking around on Google trying to find those solutions. Yeah. For oh, how can I get like that header to like move from sort of like the left side to the middle sure. and look like slightly bigger than it is in the like in the template form? For example, things like that. Yeah. They take you a long time. It can be really easy to get caught up in that. And I think, yeah. It's, and also, um, like, it looks a bit dated now, I guess. That's the other thing. Mm, in For terms modern, of the, like, the layouts and mm -hmm. stuff, like, I think the, like, a, your standard LaTeX template might mm. look dated in 2018. Yeah. But to be fair, I think it was written in the, actually, I don't know when LaTeX was written. I'm pretty like sure it was the 70s ago. or 80s. Yeah. I think. yeah. No, no, that's why it looks yeah. dated, I yeah. think. But it was, it, filled a really awesome need at the time, right? Oh, like, it's a super awesome language. And mm. for anyone who wants to do a lot of like customization mm. and um, things like this, like or specialized things. Very precise typesetting. I think. Yeah. yeah. It's really it's so, amazing. Yeah. So I was actually really surprised they actually use this at, um, have you heard of the Graden Institute here in Melbourne? No. Okay. So Graden Institute is a is an independent, um, effectively, a, so Hugh Parsonage, if you're listening, correct me, um, but it's or or anyone else, but Hugh Parsonage works at the Grad Institute and he got the whole institute to switch over to using R Markdown notebooks and they actually write in um, LaTeX. And so they do all this reporting for things like how how is like housing pricing changing, how um, yeah. it, like is traffic worse in Brisbane or Sydney or Melbourne, say, and all of the all the documents are done in LaTeX and and a lot of people there who are very used to um, working with certain typesetting 
or like you know like a lot of time in Word if they're just doing the typesetting and they're just doing the writing they actually really like it because it's so precise and they only have to work in certain documents say. yeah so yeah. if someone has already defined the document if you great. already have a template and you just you're just yeah. writing it's like the best thing in the world i think if you're making your own or like then it can start yeah. eating away the yeah. hours it's it's very easy to get caught in the minutiae of oh like where's my figure floating to or yes. you know where <laughs> is uh how can i change this uh this dot point at this point you know to change into numbers or you know. or let's have slightly less space there yeah. it, it, it starts becoming yeah. Like it starts becoming costly in terms <laughs> of hours, but we digress. We digress again. So we just yeah. wanted to say, so just to summarize, so so Sweeve um into was into like getting stuff into a PDF format. Mm -hmm. And then Knitter was extending this really to all types of like document forms. Is that right? Like we're not we're no longer just talking about PDFs. That's right. So a really important part of this was that it allowed you to generate, say, um, HTML or PDF or all these other uh, different types of outputs. Um, and Did I still have to write LaTeX? No. So the idea is that you could write it in other formats. So if you wanted to write it in Markdown, for example, this is one of the things he talks about in his thesis is that it has this extensibility. And specifically, it talks about some other features, say the, the visibility of certain parts of the output. So you can hide or show the source code, um, which you can control, say, with the echo or the warnings. So you can control which parts are shown. You can actually have control over the graphics at the type. So if you want a PDF or a PNG or both, so you can actually control the output of all your plots. And um, caching. So caching is automatically save and load R objects. Um, so this means that if you have one particular part of analysis that takes a long time, you can cache it. Uh, or as some people say, cache. I'm not sure. If there's I a, think, like, I've yeah. heard balls, but I guess it's cache for this podcast. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right, <laughs> so we're going to go with cache. And basically, um, it means that you can save the output for later, so then you don't have to constantly rerun something. And what else? Cross-referencing of code chunks. Um, so this is really important. It means that you could reference like that happened in a chunk, say, for example, a figure or a table. Um, so that was a really. So this deal. is by giving names to chunks. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So each. So of, I mean, we we will go through what to, yeah. what the structure is in a second. <clears throat> so. Um, and, and the last thing that I think is super cool is multi-language support. This is yes. it's not just R. So, it's C or Python or even yeah. other languages that aren't yet defined. So I mean, so Nita really improved the portability of one's document. Is that right? Because uh, no longer did I just need to like output a PDF, like, and I need to write in R, like all of a sudden I can write in other languages, not just R. Mm. Um, and I can also start having formats like HTML, um, Markdown, mm -hmm. um, even Word documents, crazily. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So this is sort of in part due to the fact that it was able to use um, Pandoc. So Pandoc is this um, converter, and it basically it's it's like a it's like a universal adapter, right? So you can input one thing, say in Word format, and then you can output into a PDF or a LaTeX format or HTML or something. So you could take something in, say, LaTeX and convert it into Word. And that's and 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 that's how that works. So that's the that's awesome. That's yeah, the magical part. That's the magical part. So, and also with the writing. So no longer did I need to write this complicated LaTeX code. So now we've switching from LaTeX to um, to Markdown. Which mm -hmm. so we need to talk about what Markdown is. So Markdown is 
as it says in the name, it's a markup language mm-hmm. for technical reporting, really. That's what it was designed for. Yeah. So Jonathan Gruber uh, has a website called called Daring Fireball. And he uh, so he helped write this thing in 2004. He wrote this as a standard. And it just goes like a website. standard in very much like air quotes because... Yeah, that's a very important <laughs> point, actually. <laughs> that's an important point. It's also not the only markdown language or technical reporting language there is. There's obviously other um, technical reporting languages that are out there. So um, Sphinx is, for example, another one that we found. Um, these were all had the same idea to like basically make it easier to write documentation while you're coding. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, so I think specifically in the initial introduction, it says that Markdown is a text to HTML conversion tool for web writers. That was, it was initially written for the web. Um, and he says that it allows you to write using an easy to read, easy to write plain text format, then convert it to structurally valid XHTML or HTML. Uh, and so he says it's two things, a plain text formatting syntax and also a software tool, which he wrote in Perl um, that converts yeah, plain text to formatting. I saw HTML. that. Yeah, that's... Um, that's like, that it would be fast. <laughs> it would be fast, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's... Um, so I guess the interesting thing there is that it was initially written for the web, and it also doesn't really define, it doesn't have a... Um, it's very forward-looking, really, it's at very, the time. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it was, um, I think the key things are that you, your text that you normally write is, so like plain text is what would be put in the body of yes. a document, and then it can denote things like headers with a, a pound or a hash symbol. And yeah, the cool yeah. thing is you can, so maybe just to back up, yes. for anyone who has never seen it, like a markdown file away, like, you know, an R markdown file or even a latex file, you can open any of these things just in a text editor and look at them like without having like requiring specialized software. Like you can see the source code like that, which like we know from R obviously, but that's not always the case. Like in a Word document, you wouldn't be able to just, you know, put that into like a text editor mm-hmm. like and actually see something. Yeah. That would make sense. You would see something probably, but not yeah, something so sensible. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like a minimal markup language, I guess. So rather than if you've ever, say, opened, for example, a HTML page and you've seen that there's a lot of tags hanging around, a lot of extra, um, I guess, like fluff around the words that yeah. maybe obscure the meaning. Yes. Yeah. So that, that makes it really nice. Um, however, there are some problems with like markdown that people don't like. And um, it, it, as we said, it's just one implementation of right. this type of thing, but something that has gotten incredibly popular. Mm. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about the problems, the yeah. ones that we could identify. So I, I think that the a big problem I see mentioned about Markdown is that it's, it's very flexible. And this was actually part of Jonathan Gruber's um, intention. And he's spoken about this after find the podcast, but basically... His idea is that it should be flexible and lightweight and it doesn't need to have a standard in like in the sense of, you know, a heading is specifically defined by hash space next. Yeah. Like, and like the next word is this. He just sort of said like, here's the idea. I'm like, I've written my own version of it here. And then everyone started to make their own little flavors of it and, and their own little changes of it. So, for example. So, it's like yeah. also open source. 
Yes. So again, and then with like open source languages, obviously what you get is loads of changes and you start getting loads of different flavors and it makes it super flexible and mm. super powerful, but also can then hamper this portability that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So you sort of have the, um, all the, I guess in the problem of like many competing standards, everyone's got their own slightly different way of writing Markdown, which then means that it's not unified, I guess in some sense. Um, and so one of the problems is, so one thing I really like about GitHub Playbook Markdown is that if you have, um, so one thing is you can put, if you have a code fence block, which is three backticks, and then everything following that is in, say, like a code type format, like in R. Yes. Yeah. And then you can, say, do like three backticks, and then you can write code, and then you can do three more backticks to sort of end that code block. Um, but sometimes you want to capture the fact that you've used three backticks inside your document to say this is what a code block yes. looks like, but you can't actually do it. Yeah, yes. because it's already been captured. And with uh, GitHub, it's uh, the number of backticks plus one, and then that will capture it. So you could do four oh, backticks I didn't and then know write that. three. And so that's... this is yeah, and so this is really nice. But it's a feature that's particular to GitHub Playbook Markdown and not, not. all of the other ah. ones. As an example. Um, and that's a really cool thing, but it's, um, you know, not standard across all of them. So it does depend on which flavor yes. of Markdown you're using. And I think that is a, like a problem people have had. There's another one. Um, uh, so you, you showed me a really great blog post, actually, Saskia, called, what's it? Why, Why you shouldn't mm. use Markdown for documentation. That's right. By yeah. Eric Holter. Um, who's uh, from Portland, Oregon, and I don't actually... He writes a blog called Surfing in Kansas. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I showed it to you and I was like, look at what this person wrote about yeah. how Markdown sucks because I found it. And I didn't really... I couldn't really interpret it at yeah. the time because I knew too little. And now it kind of makes more sense to me. Mm. Um, and I think it is actually a very well thought out blog post. That is really interesting. I don't think his conclusions are necessarily right, like that you shouldn't use it. I think you should just be aware yeah. um, that that's the po potential problems that you can run into. But it's, I think the problem with Markdown is it's become so incredibly popular that you almost have no choice yes. than to use it. Like, that's it. Yeah, it's, you know, um, I think it's worthwhile knowing about the shortcomings of it so you, you can sort of have a handle on, you know, problems you might encounter and, uh, like potential improvements, say, but yeah, as you said, uh, like everyone's using Markdown and it's a really good thing. Yeah, no, it is great. So I think the other thing that he mentioned is lack of extensibility. And it's also something that mm. is mentioned in the R Markdown book that I sort of read um, before this podcast. Um, it's only just been released though, right? It's just come out this year. Oh, has it? The R Markdown book. Yeah. The Definitive Garden. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's very great. Mm. He wrote it in three months, which is very incredible to me. But back to the lack of extensibility. So that's mentioned in the book as well. Oh, is it? Okay. Um, and it, that's the idea that there is only so many different things that you can do with it. And then extending it is, becomes actually really hard. And you mm. have to know other languages to do it, like CSS or like latex or other things. Mm. Um, and that can be like that can be time consuming for people. But yeah. like it's also a strength of it. I think that's something that it's it's failed that this blog fails to mention really. Mm. That there is a certain beauty in the fact that you're limited because then that really forces you to think about your writing rather than about yeah. like making things prettier. Yes, yeah, so you always talked about this in 
um, in this talk he gave last year at the Wombats and Medicine Talks. That's the workshop organized by the Monash Business Analytics team. For, and yes, yeah, so he gave this great talk where he basically said that journals should not be spending their time worrying about formatting and authors shouldn't have to, they should just be able to write the text and then submit oh, yes. it because it would save like, you know, I, oh, yeah, they I, have I think been I can estimates. easily a day yes. of my time just gets spent on formatting and changing the bibliography and this and that. And it seems like... I mean, there have been estimates like mm. for America and in reformatting articles in yeah. particular, in, in research. Sorry, guys, who for everyone who's not in research. But apparently these estimates run into the millions of dollars. <laughs> and that is just a waste of time for everyone because it really doesn't matter. It should just be about the text and... Yeah. Not about that. like is your like you know is your introduction formatted with like a big like a big font or a little font like that's crazy yeah or yeah you know is there a um, is the font size appropriately like size for the authors compared to the title yeah is the bibliography you know the right standard uh, I, I I don't think I've come across many other like bibliography formats that make it fully oh, yeah, unintelligible. It could save a lot of time. So his point was basically, could we make something where we, you just submit a paper with a standard format and then if you have the same format, then it should be easy to convert it into other things, but it shouldn't be something that the writer has to worry about. Yes. Yeah. And so this brings us nicely back down to like R Markdown. Mm. So R Markdown kind of solves all of this in a beautiful way that is really easy and really nicely integrated into mm. R Studio. Yeah. So... If you go to your R Studio session, you can select it as the format. Mm. Instead of having your general sort of like just R, R script. R, R script. Yep, yeah. Sure. You can have an R markdown these days. Mm. And so what does an R markdown what is it? Mm. Let's just talk about its structure and like what you put in there. Sure. So I guess just to bring back briefly to NIDR and R markdown, I think the way I look at it is, is that NIDR is the engine and R Markdown is sort of the chassis or the frame that sits around the car in some sense. In in the same way that R is the engine and R Studio is like the rest of the car. Yes, that makes sense. and you would sometimes see this because sometimes mm. when you open R Markdown, it of course at the beginning has like a little chunk in which it tells you what knitter options you are including. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's how you would like know that Knitter is somehow involved yes. in your R markdown. So this is part of the structure. Yeah, but, but that's not the first part of like an R markdown file. No, so it starts with um, this front matter the, uh, at the top. So it's called a YAML header. So, Does, do, do we know what YAML stands for? It stands for yet another markup language. Oh, uh, which good I think God. Is great. Um, yeah. And Acronyms in research and like computing can become really, really stupid. Yeah, yeah. There's actually my friend, um, Fred, he nearly had his name was his like his initials were nearly Fred. <laughs> and yeah, and it would have made me very happy. So he's just short one letter, but his parents nearly considered that accidentally. But we digress again. Um, but yeah, so you have your R Markdown document, you have three dashes, and then you have, say, title, author, you can put date and other information in there, and that sort of sets up the... It's like if you've seen LaTeX, this is the equivalent of slash begin and then document. So it's I everything guess. that is before the begin, though, isn't it? That's right. Kind of, that, that's what it sets up. Mm -hmm. And there is loads of things in there that you can do, um, and it's actually kind of... Like if you use it right, there's actually 
a lot of powerful mm. tools in there that like you know you can use yeah, i absolutely. like only realized this really late yeah. that like instead of just setting like author and date and a title there mm. is actually it you know you can even set a template there yes and yes, make you say, everything hey, prettier yeah and yeah. have contents maybe yeah yeah, so you could specify, for example, that you want a table of contents uh, or that you want, say, for example, a floating table of contents and a HTML page. Um, or you could specify, what are some of the other things? Say, as you said, the template. And so then you Hide can say... Hide code, for hide. example. Yeah. What types of outputs? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that's one of the most important things is you specify what type of output you can get there. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Mm -hmm. If I have done this, let's say I've chosen the really easy option and picked an HTML um, output. Yep. That's kind of the standard these days. Maybe or PDF, like either or, hmm. nothing fancy. What do I do next? So then you can, well, I think the great thing about starting this in our studio is that you get, say, your initial like kind of template already there. So you have your, your title and everything is already kind of filled out. Yes. And then you can start writing your text. Um, the strange thing about having the RStudio template or like the standard one is that you often start by removing most of the test of the text, um, but then uh, but I think it makes sense. It's it, it's also an introduction to say here are the features of our of our markdown. But I would start by say writing uh, like the title up in the front matter in the YAML, and then I'll start by saying you know this analysis is about this, or like you might have an introduction. You can just start writing. And then if you want to insert um, some code, because say you want to read in some data or something like that, um, then you can use a keyboard shortcut or press the button on top of the RStudio. Or you can tool. also just write it like mm -hmm. I do, because apparently I've not gotten used to the shortcuts. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's, so it's uh, three back ticks and then open curly brace R. And, and, then, yeah. and then I just write some code and then three back ticks to close it. And yeah. that's... That gives you code. Yes, that's like yes. Yeah, so you have your text and your code chunks, and so this is um, this is one of these things that is hard to talk about. I think because <laughs> we're describing like all of these really precise text details that would be much easier to show people. But I think the important message is that you have your text and you have your code, and the code has this particular way of being formatted. Yes, it yeah. just needs like you basically need to tell it here is some code and that's mm. what it tell like this is just the signal like the signal here is some code and if you are rendering this document you need to do something here you need to evaluate start evaluating things potentially if yes. your chunk says that you should be evaluating it because yeah. of course you can also set your chunk to not evaluate yeah so which within is your great. chunk you have these options right and yes. and you should always give each of your code chunks a name and we'll talk about that a little bit more later but it basically gives you some nice benefits later on. So you, you give your chunk a name, so it tells you a bit about what it's doing. So you could say read read data or read dash data or read underscore data. And then if you hit a comma, then you can have all these options and you can say, okay, I don't want you to include this information. So you could say include equals false. Uh, or you could say, um, and so that'll stop any of the output that is run from that from being shown. Um, and yeah, and then there's other options you can have. Say, for example, if you're making a plot in in another chunk, you can control the fig dot height or the fig dot width, and these That's, sorts of things. Yeah. And you can also tell R there that it should go into a different language potentially. Yes, that's right. So instead of say R, um, when you have your three backticks and you open the curly brace, you could write Python. Um, I think it's CPP or C plus plus for C plus plus or Bash uh, or other things like that. 
or Julia. Julia, or... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and there's like there's heaps of other options as mm. well. And I think that's all, like, always being extended, what that's is offered right. there. Yeah, so you can actually run, you can even run Stata and that sort of thing. Yeah, and Stan. And Stan, yeah. Stan, so like Stan for, for all of uh, the Bayesians out there. Yeah, so, okay, great. So the so you write your R Markdown document and you can write your code and you can specify options. I think some really great things are that you can actually set all the options globally at the start. In, um, and in your metadata? Uh, no, in the in the first or like in any R chunk, but usually at, at the first R code chunk. That's can, the nitro option thing, is Yeah, it? so you can specify some options, um, yeah, through an, uh, a function in nitro called ops underscore chunk. And then you write dollar set and then you can say, right, dev equals this. So dev is a little bit confusing, but it means device, which refers to the graphics device that you're going to plot to. So you could write it in PNG or PDF oh. or JPEG. You can specify the... DPI, so how how big uh, or how like what the dots per inch are that you want for this image, or you could globally specify the figure height and width, or that you don't want to show any of the code output and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, is it so like, this it, is a really like nice thing to actually mention. Like one important thing is that you, mm. when you evaluate code, like a lot of the times it's graphics, and these graphics mm. actually do get printed. Yes, into your um, into like underneath the chunk mm -hmm. that like is making said graphic. That's right. Yeah. So when you um, say click this button that says knit or you can run command shift or control shift K uh, or you can write the code render and then you can use a render command from R Markdown that will allow you to render this file into a PDF or HTML and this sort of thing. So um, yeah. So like really three things. So like you can yeah. write your code, yeah. get some graphics and write some text yep. to describe what you've done. And that really makes sort of your basic like R markdown with some like metadata mm. that it, like really kind of specifies what it looks like. Yes. Mostly. It also does some other things, but that's kind of mostly what it does and specifies the output. Yeah. And, and for me, this was a really, um, you know, I was really happy when I realized that I could control all the different outputs. So say when I submitted to a journal and I submitted my figures and they said, oh, we would like these in TIFF uh, format, please. <laughs> I had no idea how to change it or anything, and so I went through like some really roundabout way of downloading like uh, Inkscape, and then like messing around in there, converting the format, you know. Ugh. But now you could say, for example, just change the device, just like up top, and then yep. everything is done. Yeah, that's it, and it, and it's great, and it feels really good. Well, that obviously means all your analysis was in one uh, markdown for this paper. Yes. Which is, I mean, that's great. I it wish I good. could work like that. It, it, <laughs> it doesn't always work. Um, and so actually this brings on to the point of reproducibility, which I think is a really important part of why you have these things in one document. And, you know, like there are certain trade-offs for having things in one document, but I think the reproducibility is a really good one. So it, every time you run the document, it's always going to go from the start to the finish. And so then that way you know that this is reproducible. Yeah, and that like any changes you've made are mm. going to be taken forward to the next like little mm. chunks that you want to run, yeah. which is great. Mm. And that does work for a lot of people unless you start having really big data, in yeah. which case maybe caching that we talked about briefly before mm. is an option. Yeah. So, so caching, yeah, this was a new feature of... Nidar and Sweep, so why this is important, why it's different. And so you could save the results of, say, reading the data or you could save the results of some of, of some big analysis 
so that when you rerun the document, it doesn't have to redo the analysis. Yeah, um, so it doesn't compute it unless mm. you have changed something and like the cache barcode or whatever it is yeah. actually like changes and then it does reevaluate. Yeah, that's right. And so, mm -hmm. we were talking about this earlier because I was having problems with caching because I'm using fairly large data set. Yeah. And so it just kind of took too long and it was also super annoying. Um, but you said that like that A, what I didn't realize was that caching doesn't necessarily like keep the order, which I thought was interesting. So that means that like, when I change my chunk at the beginning, um, it only reevaluates that chunk and then everything else that is still caged will remain the same. So I do actually have, like, unless I specifically specify set up, correct? Or does R know that I've changed something and then like starts changing things underneath? The way the caching works is that you can specify if you want something to be cached or not, say for each for each individual code chunk, or you could specify it at the top and say, I want all of my code uh, to be cached. So it says, I'm going to save the output from each of these. And um, at that point, then it sort of takes a snapshot of, of all the text. Say so, like it assigns that, um, I think it's technically a hash. It's basically just a long complex number um, or Some like sort an of alphanumeric barcode number. Thing. Yeah. Barcode thing. Um, and then if any of that text changes within that code chunk, then that hash will change. And then when it goes through to run the document again, it will say, oh, okay, so this is this hash has changed, and so I'll run that code again. But it only runs the, the code chunks that are different, which might mean, say, for example, if you update your data at the start, yeah. that might not necessarily trickle down to everything else. So you have to be really careful. You have to be careful and there are some ways around it. So you can do um, cache or you can say depends on and then you can specify which cache or so which chunk each of the steps of the analysis should refer to in the document. So this gives you, so this is again another reason to use names. So you can refer to the chunk by name. So you can specify cache obviously in your knitter options at the start or you can also define it for every chunk that you want to cache individually. So... There's like two yeah. ways of doing it. Or you can use auto dep equals true, and then that will do a sort of a first pass at a, a slightly clever way, or a, a clever way of checking the dependencies of the code, but it's not guaranteed to work. Um, but <laughs> like it'll have a go so that you can, you know, relax slightly. But um, yeah, so caching is really good, but it should be used with a bit of uh, caution, I guess, because you could have a problem, say, where you update your data, yes. and then the rest of the document won't update. Yeah, uh, which is why it's a good idea to occasionally clear out your cache. And if you're in our studio, there's an option on knit. There's a little arrow, and you can go down and say clear knit a cache, and this will sweep it out. And then you have to start again. So, nice. Yeah. yeah, it's always good to know. So that's a brief introduction for, for why caching is important. It's also important for why you should name all of your chunks, because if you don't name a code chunk, it gets called say untitled one, and then if you have another chunk after that that isn't named untitled two. And then if you run your analysis, um, then that's fine. That's untitled one, untitled two. But then if you insert a new untitled chunk before the first untitled one, then all of those names get updated and then they have to get recached again. So it so can speed up your analysis. So now we're naming. So is a good name for my chunk mm. Hello World, like Space World? Is that a good name? No, so spaces are bad. I think spaces can actually work, but it, it can lead to some work. really weird yeah. behavior later on. And I think, and so 
underscores will work and so will dashes. I use dashes because it allows me to um, quickly jump through each individual word by holding down, I think, control or alt. Oh, okay. Whereas um, an underscore gets treated as a whole word. Um, ah. And I think I, I remember reading somewhere when I first started using our markdown, someone said to avoid underscores. Now that we have like sort of the simple R markdown structure, um, let's go to the most important, like almost popular output formats that there are. Um, like, yeah. so it's like very diverse, actually, mm-hmm. super diverse, and like always extending as well, as we already said. So, one of the, like, so we've kind of started with reports. Um, reports are one, um, obviously, and like, interestingly, with reports is you can actually automate them as well, which is something that like is only mm. really available when you look at our markdown. Hmm. So, so in terms of the reporting and the automating, you mean? So Yeah, so you can like, and I think we had a really interesting um, introduction to this at the USAR conference mm. um, where like, I can't remember her name, but you might be able to remember her name. The girl that talked about um, the Great Barrier Reef and oh, doing the reports. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was Amy Stringer. Yeah, so yeah. Amy had a had a really cool use case for mm. um, automated reporting um, with R Markdown. So yep. she has a ton of data mm. from the Great Barrier Reef, um, yeah. but heaps of images, right? Yes, so many images, mm. and she has these like slightly automated reports, but. When her collaborators look at these reports, they're not interested in everything. Mm-hmm. They don't want to, like, you know, see like the entirety of the Great Barrier Reef. They might only be interested in a very small region. Yep. So, how do you provide, um, like, a report that like is targeted towards these without every single time having to like manually update it? And there's a really neat solution mm. in um, R Markdown, and that is um, basically you can have these parameters mm. in your metadata. Yeah, it's great. So you could say, you know, so instead of say having the entire Great Barrier Reef in one one single document, you could create many, many different documents and each document can be on a specific section of the reef, but you don't have to manually create each of these. You could actually instead have it to focus on a certain set of data. So you can say in your parameters, say the parameter, um, you know, like your data can change. So you say, uh, the parameter For is example, the data. region. You could have region. region. Yeah. And then you can write some code outside of that that says, okay, I want you to render this document and I want to pass you the parameter of the data, which is going to be, say, from, you know, these 20 different data sets and then it'll produce 20 different reports. Yeah. Each, each of them with a different data set. And that's super cool. And also mm. you can do it, you can actually use a GUI mm-hmm. um, so that, like if your collaborators like open our studio and yes. they have all the data available to them, mm. they can start generating reports that are specifically of interest to them where they might define a region and a year in like a GUI. So that means that you don't have to actually interact with code. So you just kind of yeah. do the click and drag or click and write. Yeah. And mm. then it automatically does a report and then you get like your PDF file and you can read it without having to really look at R. You just need like, you know, you need yeah, the underlying so things, the code and obviously an R studio, but that's it. Yeah. And then you could run, so that's really cool, right? So you have a shiny app that'll have these, have these different, these different arguments. And so this is, I don't think provi- it's a shiny app. Like it's not provided. Is it provided by default in R studio? Or do yeah, they I think so. This? Really? Yeah. That's awesome. I think I, that's what I saw in the book anyway. In 
the That's so awesome. I didn't know that. I might be a new newer like feature. Yeah. So Nick doesn't believe me and he's like checking it out. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> now he believes me. <laughs> yeah, so you can write like knit with parameters and then he can choose yes. the parameters. That's so awesome. Yeah. See, this is like this is what I meant with parameterization. Now now he understands. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, um, this makes it really. I th th this makes it really neat. I mean, it does still require an R Studio instance and mm. like a little bit of familiarity with like at least opening it. Yeah. But it does. It does really sort of get away from like having having them code anything, mm. or having to generate those twenty reports as you were saying like before, because you can just you know generate one of them, like like one sort of big one once and then give that to your collaborators and then they can actually do the programming bit like well, not the programming bit actually the the evaluating bit on their side and that sort of you know might take um like that's that's really a neater way of doing things yeah. much more efficient really i'm uh yeah so i think yeah but like i think when in I amy's Nick case something, that, by yeah, the way. yeah well i think in amy's case that she had to do some data munging to uh to make that work right with the years. And that yes, sort of I think yeah. it might not have worked in her case yeah. yet, but, but like this is this is a neat solution mm. to this. Um, mm. But it's, uh, yeah, and so like it means that someone doesn't need to know about generating reports. They just know that they want to select the region and the year and then they can get the report yes. that they want and then look at it, um, which is awesome. And it means, say, for example, that uh, if you have the same analysis for many different data sets, then you can say report those automatically or it also means if we go back to the first example that if you run your entire analysis with a data set and then someone says oh i got some new data can you run the analysis again um then you don't have to go through the pain of you know yeah recreating and copying and pasting all of the the pieces or and the graphics and the tables and everything and another thing i don't think we actually touched on is inline Oh yes, yeah, we yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, so damn using it. using inline. So inline refers to putting something within text. Um, in this case, so you could say refer to the coefficients from some linear regression model or something like that. And or how say, many fish you have in the region. Yes, exactly. So you could be like, there are this many, and then you can write backtick r, and then say I don't know n row of your data, and then backtick, and then it will say there are this many of these things. And there's actually a package called English that will convert any number into words well i'm not yeah. sure that you would want that but sure yeah but say, <laughs> say for example if you did if you had some star guidelines say from a journal that didn't want you to report numbers over a certain size yeah okay yeah, yeah. you could write a need r function that would evaluate it just yeah. in case it is like less than 10 let's yes, say something like that yeah no that's that's cool yeah that's pretty neat um yeah and so that inline output i think is um yeah, so that's and that's like that's feature. super. That makes it super powerful for like these types of automated reporting. Yes. I think. I mean, I also use it when I write my documentation, but mm. like especially for automated reporting, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, really. Absolutely. Um, well, yeah. that actually brings me to like sort of the next part of yeah. a different output. So reports. We also have books and articles. Yeah. So this is great. With Bookdown. Yes, yeah, so you can. So uh, I think Bookdown is really. Um, it means that you can write, say, instead of a document, you can write many chapters, or like instead of a single, a single document, you can have many chapters, and you can put them online in HTML, and yeah, it's just awesome. And there's some great like uh, recent examples. Mm. There are statistic books written with um, Bookdown, including Rogers. Yeah. 
that um, like are provided for free or really, really little money. Um, hmm. And they are HTML. They're kind of live documents as well, which is nice. So they get continually updated. And yes. sometimes, I mean, they yeah. are on GitHub and you can contribute, which is beautiful. Yeah, so I, like, I had this really funny problem where I was running a reading group for Advanced R at the same time that Hadley was updating all of one section yeah. that we were reading. <laughs> and so every week we would come through to reading the book and we're like, we all got slightly different content because Hadley was working on it that week. And so and it, it was just a bit confusing. Um, it was good though because he was improving it. But um, yeah, it, it was a funny it was a funny situation to be in. I think um, it's great because it means we as the consumers get much quicker access to these books, even if they're yeah. not perfect yet. But we can start learning earlier. Yeah. Or we can, you know, as you said, you can contribute back on, on GitHub because yes. others are typo or like this doesn't really make sense. I've got an idea for how to communicate that as an example. Um, and so there's an option, I think, on your GitHub book. Uh, so on, on Bookdown where you can specify there's like a little, there's a little pen icon on the top and then you can click on that and then that'll take you to making a change through a pull request on GitHub. That, um, yeah, that's mm. like, yeah, so that's basically editing yes. in the old-fashioned sense. Yes, yeah. Um, which, yeah, that's a neat little thing to have on top of, mm. like, all this um, very complex machinery that yeah. you get these very old-fashioned things. Um, yeah. But it's good to say, for example, a PhD student can write their whole PhD thesis So in, in, um, in Bookdown, or you can write, like, you know, your textbook if you're writing a course, for example, and you just want everyone to have the content. Um, yeah, so there's a couple of books, say, for example, R for Data Science or um, Modern Dive yes. is another one. Modern Dive is like the example that I always think of, mm. which is um, a statistics textbook for mm. sort of everyone, not necessarily actually just that students, but more like your psychology biology students that need yep. also need to learn statistics and it's really trying to gently ease them into mm. um, statistics with this book and yeah. in a tidy verse fashion and it's all written in book down so that's yeah and so you can take this one output in this markdown format and you can say have it as a document or you can do some very minor tweaking and you can have a book and so like i think that's like a really I don't know. It's kind of like you get so much for free in some sense, you know, and it's kind yeah. of hard to, uh, I don't know, like I, I find hard to, like I want to emphasize how awesome that is, you know. It's so, I don't know. I no, like I, I think it's great. And especially for people who have written longer documents with Word, maybe you would appreciate how, like, how, how fast, like, these documents remain because they're all text-based. Because with Word, like, once you, like, start writing longer documents, they do tend to crash or you start inputting like math formulas or more complex things, uh, which obviously latex and R mark and markdown all support. It like you know, you get these really lightweight, still pretty lightweight documents that don't tend to crash. But yeah, so there are these other outputs we can have. And so you could write, say for example, your slide deck or your presentation. Well yes. So that's yeah. the next like just yeah. to mention also obviously articles. Yes. Oh yeah articles, yes. You're right. Yes. Would you like to talk about that? Well actually I have not much to say about articles. I think okay. it's just a really neat feature. Like citations are obviously something that can be done really easily in our markdown. Yeah. Um you can integrate your bib text formats in mm -hmm. K like so that's Mm -hmm. BibTeX is just a way to um, yeah. reference, like really easily reference um, papers or mm -hmm. books 
um, like any academics have to do. There can be a lot of editing depending on, you know, journal formats and so on. Yeah. Um, and so book down, uh, so, sorry, um, text makes that really easy and it's nice that that's integrated yeah. and you get that for free. Um, and also there is nice integration with R Markdown and Overleaf, Overleaf being a tool that you can use in order to collaboratively work on like latex and markdown documents. I think not even Markdown, it's like rich text documents, which is just another format that is also provided in our Markdown. Yeah, so that's with, um, so Overleaf is sort of like, a, or the way I've had it explained to me is it's like Google Drive, but with LaTeX and you yes. can work with other people. So like you could share it with um, uh, like your co-authors and then you can write it in the right format for a journal. Yeah, say. so there's loads of templates in mm. like already included. And mm. that's kind of like mostly... Um, latex based but they, there are nice integrations with our uh, markdown and we'll include some blog posts okay great on um on on the show notes but yeah just back to the articles though so you can get so there's the article so just not ar but just r and then t-i-c-l-e-s so that's a that's a package that's a package by our studio and that allows you to say specify if you want like i want to write a paper in the format of say the um, uh, the Journal of um, Statistical Software and that sort of thing or, and all these like Elsevier general format and that sort of thing. Um, and there's also Papaya, which is also a package that oh, does that articles. Oh, and really? I think that's a APJ cool. style articles, that right? Something like that. Yeah, but anyway. Yeah, slides. Let's go to slides. Something that you are very good at and I have never tried. I think I saw it the first time when I went to the USAR conference in 2015 and I've already talked about that, but I saw Slidify there for the first time and it kind of amazed me that you could produce slides with R. Yeah. So when does it make sense to do this? What are the more, maybe more recent options? Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Like all these questions. Yeah, so I... Um, so... Writing an R slide deck um, in a similar way, so you could actually do something kind of similar in LaTeX. You could have Beamer was the um, was the uh, like this LaTeX package that would allow you to convert something into um, a presentation format. I think oh, yeah. it, it comes from the fact that Beamer means like um, it's like uh, oh yeah, like it's the German, the German word. it's the German word for, for projector. Yeah. So that's that's where it comes from. And so the idea is that you and could can have your just, paper. Can I just say yes, that like please. we see a lot of latex uh, Beamer presentations still, and sorry, they are slightly awful. Yeah, at I this stage, I'm sorry to everyone who's still using them, but I am so sick of seeing them. I think it's just overstimulation by them. I think it's that it looks good, but if you've seen the standard Beamer blue template, then it's kind of it can feel a bit. Like you've already seen that same talk yeah. in some sense of like here is the same like template like someone has, you know, not tried to make it a little bit different. And, yeah. Uh, and also, I've, I've, I mean, I've customized my own Beamer, um, yeah. Beamer template into like a Barbie themed style oh, really? once. Yeah. Um, so I used the Barbie pink and I was trying to use the font as well, but I couldn't get the font into like that was just okay. too much. But anyway, like I mm. did, I did a lot of um, like a lot of customization there and it took forever mm. um and so i can say it's probably much easier these days with when you use slidify yeah so or the, other mm. packages because there are heaps yeah so the idea is uh, i guess in the sim in a similar way that you have your latex documents someone could be working on a paper and then they want to turn that into 
a presentation and then they could use Beamer and with some small tweaks turn the paper into a presentation. So I, I think that if you're thinking about this, this is already kind of a mistake. Because, oh, yeah. <laughs> because you shouldn't just present your paper with, say, slide breaks in between like the huge paragraphs. Um, but um, that's sort of the idea that you could trim it down and you could have all the content there. Say, that was one way that someone explained Beamer to me. And in a similar way, you can have your R Markdown document and then you could turn it into a slide deck and into a presentation um, with some small changes, say, with uh, three dashes to represent a slide break. Uh, or sometimes it's the pound symbol and that's like the next slide. So in terms of when to use it, I think it's great to use if you have, if you'd like to show our content as well. Yeah. So if you want to present, um, I think that's to me that is really the only time I would use it is if I had our culture show. Otherwise, mm. I think you're better off using, mm. you know, your other products that sure. are available to you because the WYSIWYGs. Yes. What you see is what you get. Is yeah. What that stands for. Yeah. So I okay, I tend to agree, but I it is nice to know that I want an arrow to point exactly here, and you don't have to think about how to find something to generate an arrow and get that to point somewhere. But I think in the same sense that Markdown makes you think about having simple content, having a Markdown presentation can make you think about having the content a bit simpler. Yes. And so, you know, I, I think that that can be really nice, but it doesn't always work. Um, but it, I think yeah. just to me, like the great thing about mm. the other tools that mm. we're not going to mention by name here, apparently, um, <laughs> the, the, the tools to be unnamed, um, yeah. these I think the great thing is that you can make um, little, your little animation type things and mm -hmm. that I would think are difficult to produce. Not not just animations, I mean also just, you know, your infographic type mm -hmm. output. And I would think that would be so difficult to do an R. Yeah, so I think that, you know, like it is, um, yes, yeah, so, you know, I would, like I agree with you. And I think that, um, so I, I've actually written a blog post about this actually, about the, like, how to write, it, uh, there was a really great talk or slide deck that was shown that was, say, um, key points for making a good slide deck or good presentation. And then I talked about that in the context of what I prefer to use and how that works with our markdown. And so we can put that in the show notes. But I think like the important thing is that you can make a slide deck and I think that it actually has a lot of power and there's been some really great ones say by Emmy Tanaka has got a really amazing slide deck yes all in she, she did uh, present really at uh, she did present at the R ladies last week and um, in Melbourne and she, yes she had this beautiful template that is uh, she will actually make available for everyone to use and mm. it like soon she I think she needs a little bit more work yeah but yes, there are beautiful ones out there. And I agree with you. The mm. templates, like they, they really... So, okay. But the point is that there's... So like you can make your markdown document into, say, a book or into a slide deck presentation. And then you could also do something with... Uh, or like you can turn it into articles or you could turn it into a blog, I guess. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. So like this is what Emmy mm. Tanaka oh, yeah. at the R Ladies actually talked about. Mm. Um she talked about block down, mm. which is awesome and really simple. And it basically means you can build a website with Hugo templates. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just, I guess, like a type of language for making websites that has loads of templates yep. out there. And that this block down essentially is a sort of like borrowing in order to like integrate like markdown language into um, these template, these Hugo templates, and then convert it to Hugo language, and then you can publish it um, as your website. Yeah. 
and it makes it really, really simple. Like there is really only three or four steps involved in getting your website up. Yeah. You would know better than me. You have a beautiful website oh, using yeah. Blockdown. Well, I, I think there's this, this funny thing where you're like, I just want to change that that line to be a dotted line. And then it's like hours go by. And <laughs> That's what she said. She yeah. said when you try to do any customization that's outside of the template, it yeah. takes forever. It's, yeah. But you can get started up with something like out of the box really quickly. And I think one of the great things is that I, so I went through this whole like world of pain about three or four years ago where I wanted a website where I could generate our content and then make it run and then have my images and my code like nicely highlighted and everything. And it was just like a like this nightmare of I used a thing called Jekyll and then I like eventually through some roundabout things and like reading a lot of blog posts, I found some people had written some really good documentation on how to do this with R and yeah, but now with Blogdown, it makes it like much easier. What you can do in an afternoon with Blogdown would have taken, you know, like days. Um, well, <laughs> days is on who knows nothing about Bash or anything or like any... Yeah, or yeah. CSS. <laughs> yeah, c- yeah, CSS or HTML. You know, I've... Yeah, anyway, but it's um, so it's really cool, right? So you have a similar kind of format. Right? You can have your R Markdown, your R Markdown document as an individual blog post. And so then you could share, say, some research that you're doing or something like that. If you want to share a summary of your research paper or if you just want to say, here's something cool in R that I wrote. And that's mm-hmm. why we have so many blogs, I think, as well about yep. R because it has made it so easy. Mm. And that's great because that's really where people find a lot of code mm. and outside of maybe GitHub. Yep. And it's most it's it's also well-documented code and mm. people really go through their thinking on why they want to do certain things. And it yep. really helps understanding, I think. Not just understanding for the person reading it, but also for the person writing it. Absolutely. And I also think that blogs are this great thing where it's a really great way for people to engage with the community where if they feel like they're still trying to find a voice or they want to sort of like be more involved, you can write a blog about something that you're doing or a problem that you had and how you solved it. And these are really valuable things for the community. Yeah. Um, no. And you're like, that's where like a lot of error messages I, I find often the most useful ones will yeah. be Stack Overflow or a blog post yeah. where someone talks about this. Or just like you find really good ideas of what you could be do with doing with the next sort of graphic that you want to build. Yes. And um, yeah, I, I love blog posts. Mm. Um, also, I wanted to mention that Amy actually called you out. At the uh, like our ladies Melbourne talk and said that you were someone who could get advice in Melbourne because you have a very beautiful block down. Oh really? Yeah. Did she say that? Yeah, you were one of the great. You were one of the great examples. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just (laughs) borrowed of uh, of of Yifei and then he. um, So you know, but uh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. No, you got you got a shout out. Hi, I'm Amy Tanaka. I'm going to talk a little bit about Blockdown. Blockdown is great because basically it streamlines your R Markdown document to easily publish it with a website. So get started with Blockdown. So there's also an inter... Like going away from the slides, there's also an interactive um, component. Mm. And that's really interesting and obviously probably where most of the development currently is happening Mm -hmm. in the R Markdown space. Um, and maybe let's start with notebooks, which is one of the interactive components. Yeah. And that probably recently has gotten a lot of... Hot topic. C- hot topic, controversial. Yeah. So controversial. Hot, hot, hot. I thought, like, we were talking earlier and we were saying, maybe it's the Manhattan effect. So it's like a yeah. psychological phenomenon where you start seeing things that are related to what you're doing or what you're thinking about yeah. everywhere. And that's what it felt like for me in the past few weeks, like researching our markdown. 
it started popping up everywhere and notebooks in particular yeah. So controversial. <laughs> yeah, it was. I think it started because of a presentation uh, from someone at PyCon, um, which was called, I'll just get it up. It's called, like, Why You Shouldn't Use Jupyter Notebooks, I think. So, Notebooks is an idea that is yes. borrowed from Jupyter uh, Notebooks. Mm. So, this is obviously a Python. Um, I guess it's not just Python. Actually, Jupyter, <sighs> like, helped. Help us understand what Jupyter stands for, because it yeah. doesn't just do Python, but it's probably mainly used for Python. Yeah, so Jupyter stands for Julia Python and R, and it's yeah. So I think it's J U P Y T E R, I think. Or, yes. Yeah. And it's the idea that you can mm. like basically you have these chunks of code, and you also have text around, so very similar to R Markdown, and you can start interactively evaluating them and then saving what you've done straight away without having to like do this knitter step that we that sure. we talked about with our markdown where you reevaluate everything. Yeah. So I guess part of it comes from the idea that you would be writing, say, a lab notebook and you would be writing notes. And yes. so you'd like be writing down and as you do that, you're not gonna like rewrite the notes again. So it's like as you run your analysis and you run each part, then you can share that as say a HTML document. And then um and I think the the other thing is that inside that document, it embeds all of the images and everything in there. Yes. So then does. you can share, say, like a document with someone and it's just one file rather than, say, because if you share just like the document to someone that is just the markdown document or just the HTML document, but it doesn't have any of the, the images or anything, it doesn't, it can't, it can't pull them in because it's, uh, because it's doing stuff under the hood. Um, and I think that the controversy came from the fact that you can run parts of your notebook out of sync so you could run say step 10 or like you could go to line 10 then run that and then run line four and six and then so it's not chronological so this has some problems for reproducibility in that yes sense. and that mm. makes sense um mm. but as a like someone who has recently actually tried a jupyter notebook because i had a foray into python mm. sorry guys but it was sorry. faster yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good <laughs> um it was really nice being able to, like you know, evaluate chunks here and there quickly mm. and see what was happening, mm -hmm. um, and being able to like sort of diagnose problems that way yeah. rather than having to like write everything out, mm -hmm. um, like separately, like you, like you would do an R, like yeah. you'd like run like a chunk here and there, mm -hmm. but then you'd have to rerun everything once you wanted to save it. And here, what I didn't have to do like rerun everything. Um, you know, because like it would have taken a long time, mm -hmm. but obviously, as you said, I have to be sure that I had done it like somewhat chronologically. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. I would get results that just don't make any sense, yeah, or so, are not reproducible. Yeah, so this was to me, I was a little bit confused because I think for me, I feel like I'm using a notebook when I use our Markdown in our studio, um, but I'm actually not. It's a specific format that you have to select. Yes. So you have your R Markdown document or you can select to build a notebook and the notebook has this feature of sort of I guess like preserving things as you run them um, as you were saying but you can also have this kind of notebook um, format of our markdown in our studio where say if you run a code chunk that produces a plot it'll shove the plot in directly below the document as yes. you're editing it yeah and that's really nice and some people don't like that and you can turn it off so that it shows in the plot viewer but it also does nice things for example where if you have your LaTeX output, um, say like you want to put in an equation, it'll show the equation and exactly how it looks directly below. 
which I think is like super nice. Then you can actually make sure that you're writing the right yeah. equation yeah. and you don't get some annoying. Oh, that's amazing! Error. I had I had no idea that that was possible because yeah. that's really cool because equations are notoriously hard to get right. Yeah, it's pretty frustrating when you run an entire document and then it's like, oh, like obscure LaTeX error. And you're like, oh, so let's just, I mean, let's go back to the controversy because so the controversy, like as you said, was started by. Um, by a presentation and then was taken up by Roger and Hillary. Um, was it? On, um, on not so standard deviations. On not so standard deviations. Oh, really? not, okay. not on not so standard deviations, but they were both tweeting about it. Okay. And they both don't like notebooks. I see. Okay. So this is, yeah. So the, the presentation that was presented at PyCon uh, is called I Don't Like Notebooks by Joel Gruss, G R U S. Uh, and we'll put that slide deck in the show notes. But I think it, I'm actually really happy that he gave this talk because I feel like it's really important for people to be able to have a voice to say, I don't like this thing. And, you know, like it shouldn't, even if it's like a small voice, it should still be able to be heard. And he's got some pretty good points. And then like this gets picked up, like you said, by Roger and Hillary on Twitter. Yes, so and then it becomes. Say? So Roger said, I think notebooks encourage putting things in putting everything into a single document. But that goes against clear communication and developing a coherent narrative of an analysis, which I think is correct, but that's probably at the communication step, like he mm. is, I think, thinking a little bit too far ahead. If I'm still doing like analysis, like if I'm just sort of in an exploratory state, mm. which I am often mm -hmm. or almost all the time, yep. like I might not want to like, you know, I'm communicating with myself rather than with another person. And that is obviously different, yeah. I think, to me. So like what I value in when I communicate with myself is, efficiency i like fast computational times because i'm yep. trying lots of different options and um it's like you know i'm valuing like plots being in the same sort of document and not having to recompute everything and like so like and it might be more like hillary said that what she doesn't really like is that it's more a stream of consciousness narrative mm. but i actually like this when i'm communicating with mm. myself yeah Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting point, right? It's like here's the communication step, but who's your audience? And if the audience is yourself, then you like you kind of know what you're doing, and you don't have to worry about communicating to others. And I think that this is an interesting tension, right, where you sort of have um, the, I guess, the audience, but also like, I don't know, like, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that this idea of a single document, I think, is really interesting because. I have this problem, say, if you have a really big analysis or you have an analysis that comes in many parts and you want to capture that entire process, you can start and you put things into a document, but at some point you sort of reach this, this level where you've done all of your exploratory analysis and you don't want to get rid of that. Like you don't want to lose that part of the analysis yeah. and, and you don't want to lose the part where you were puzzling through how do I clean this data and that sort of thing. And you sort of want to record those steps so other people can see them. Um, but that doesn't really have anything to do with the actual analysis or the final report. Or say, for example, if you're fitting a really big model that might take many hours to run, yeah. then you probably, like, you could run it on your machine, but it feels like you're kind of handling like a very delicate object then. Say, for example, if you've got caching set up and then you like bump <laughs> something and then you have to rerun this analysis, it's like, oh, that's really annoying. So I feel like there is actually kind of this this space where you kind of want to have things separated out into separate steps and separate components. And this, uh, this has actually been talked about a bit in the sense of a research compendium. Um, so there's been some work in our open sci on that. And um, 
I, I believe that Duncan Temple Lang and Robert Gentleman have also written about this. I'll try and find the article. Oh, yeah. Put um, it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. So just briefly on that note, there's one thing where they talk about, say, presenting your whole paper as an R package that has the data in the data folder and this sort of thing. And I, I think that's an interesting idea, but I think that it's fundamentally flawed for two reasons. One is the fact that your data folder is usually limited to five megabytes, yeah. which doesn't really... That's not going to work for most people. For most people, that won't work. And the other feature is that you don't really get a way to capture and share the data effectively in the sense that you need someone who then uses R, which isn't necessarily always going to work. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's my rant. Um, yeah, no, no, that's that's that seems really fair. Like, I just thought it was really interesting because hmm. I have actually really come to love notebooks, hmm. and um, I still split like my notebooks into separate things because mm-hmm. for me, it's like this is one part of the analysis is long and it's like has a clear end to it, and sure. I want to capture that it's like in itself like one coherent analysis. Yeah. And then like I might use things from that analysis into the next sort of like for mm-hmm. me coherent bit of the analysis yes yeah. it, it does use some results that i've generated before mm. but it still produces like one other result and it just helps me to like mm. structure what i'm trying to do yeah i know i could do it all in one notebook but because it's like a lot of different computations it's mm. like easier to like split it out and yeah. save somehow save an intermediate result at some point yeah um and i think it comes back to again, like whatever works for you is probably the way you should be doing it. Mm-hmm. It like like a lot of these times these conversations feel a bit contrived because in the end, like as long as it's like reproducible and you are linearly running your notebook mm-hmm. and so it keeps reproduce like you keep it reproducibility, and you also like you know, have text that logically makes sense for someone to read and like you clearly label this as the first document, mm-hmm. you should go to and that's the second then what does it matter in the end? Well, I guess it matters from, you know, just to take the contrary position that I think that like it's really important that you run those notebooks from start to finish because otherwise you don't know. Sure. Yeah. But I think then that you, you have to kind of separate out that process. And there's been a bit of work done by this. Um, so Peter Baker's done some of the um, some work on this on the dry workflow. So he gave a really cool talk yeah. last week at the he Australian was also at user. Conference. And he was at USAR. I think he... Might have presented on that as well. Yes, he uh, did present on the dry workflow. Oh, oh, I did? Oh, good. Um, and then... But he the... also does a lot of separation of his in- steps and yes. saving of <clears throat> intermediate results. Yeah. Which, um, you know, even like, you know, Roger is, of, of course, also a fan of this because he said single document doesn't actually, you know, do all of these things. Mm. But I think you can, you know, you can use a notebook here and like here and there. It's not... It's well, it can just you... be actually like a series of notebooks. So you can just have yeah. a series of notebooks, like, uh, like which is what you were suggesting. Yeah, right? I'm yeah. just I'm saying that, and like mm. I'm just saying, like it, it depends the way that you use that notebook. Like, yeah. yes, if you do out of sorts um, computation, then obviously you're mm. not doing it right. And um, if, but if you're just using it for like you know, you go through it and mm. you like the interactivity that it provides, yeah. then that's probably a good thing. Yeah, so I like I actually like I'll talk briefly about what I have done with this in the past. I had to run a really um, like a pretty big like Bayesian model that took about four hours to run, and then I had all these data preparation steps, and then I needed to run the same model but for a, a few different outcomes as well. So I had to write so I, I use these parameters, and then I created four different reports, and then each of these reports saved the key outputs from that into this next folder which was then picked up in the final paper which then picked up all the summaries 
but um, I actually really liked using an R Markdown part for that because I could send like I could inspect all of the output at the end that is, and then I could look yes. at it and then I also had another document that was just all my diagnostics which had every single MCMC diagnostic and with the floating a floating table of contents so I could look at each of my different outcomes and each of the different types of diagnostic as well and that was super useful um, I'm so glad you said that mm. because it makes me feel like less of a control flick. I think for me, because mm. a computer like this is this is going to like sound like a grandma now. Okay. But like I mean because a computer is such a black box, I like inspecting everything I yeah. do and making sure that like there is actually something there. Yeah. Like and it's not just producing like a bunch of zeros or nulls or yep. like character zero, like mm -hmm. my biggest nightmare. I like I like I like looking at things. So even if I like if I just run do the like vendor markdown, mm. it feels so far removed from me as a person that I then freak out. Like yeah. I know I can look at everything and I can write loads of print statements yeah. into my markdown file. Yes, but like it I can just do it while I'm yeah. like computing. It feels closer to like to the program. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. It's um like it's I think it's just psychological really what it is in the end yeah well I think for me so I, I took this to like the next like to the nth degree and I I made a make file so I had to learn about make which is this rather yes. archaic um, <laughs> but super powerful way of uh, like specifying an order of operations and so then it means we should totally you... have an episode about like workflows oh with yeah. makes and everything but yeah but yeah no I wish it was it it requires a bit of unpacking but uh yeah, it, it felt good, but it was, um, but yeah, it was, it's still difficult. And there has been a lot of really good work, work done on this. And we can talk about that maybe on another episode. Yes, let's. But yeah. Actually, let's, like, you know, we haven't mentioned one, so interactivity mm. feature. We've done notebooks, we've talked about the controversy, but there is actually much more interactivity that's probably more interesting. Mm, yes. So tutorials can be interactively produced mm -hmm. and with Learn R. Yep which is a beautiful package mm. that allows you to write little exercises which you and mm. kind of has like a function where you have r in your html yeah it's it's great so you can it i, I don't know specifically how it works but it means that you can have this floating box and you write say one plus one and then you can execute the code and see what the output is inside a html document that's super good super good so you could get people to practice say an exercise or something or choose um, like from a set of multiple choice questions or something, and then you can tell what output you want, and you can you can even evaluate whether they get the right answer. That's right. So they're actually also working on a way of recording that information as well. So so Garrett Grohlman's working on Grader, which uh, which helps with that. So I think that's still under development, but um, yeah, yeah. really exciting though. That right? is super could, exciting. I think you can that imagine it, a book, right? Yes, and you have exercises at the end of the chapter, yeah. and then you have your yeah, yeah. Um, there's like also. HTML widgets that mm. allow you to integrate interactive um, HTML programs mm -hmm. into um, your like HTML yeah. output, um, and they are really like I guess they've really taken off. Like you can like for example with the leaflet package, yep. you can integrate maps that way yeah. and make those maps in like show you interactive information on top of this. And I guess Plotly is another one where you have yep. interactive mm -hmm. plots. You can also do Shiny, but that's actually not that great, I find. Oh, so really? you, yeah, there's so like embedding a Shiny app inside yeah, a document. Yeah, so okay. the problem is when you do this, you can't really save that because mm -hmm. you need to still have R, like an R instance running in the background. Yep. 
So shipping that to your collaborators isn't really an option unless they have R and all of the stuff that sure, they okay. need to like run run this, like all well, the packages and all the... I wonder what happens if you run Shiny inside a notebook then? Would it embed it in there? They'd still need to have R, surely. I think the same problem. Yeah, same problem. Yeah, same problem yeah. okay. remains. So, yeah, so like <laughs> it's interesting, but not not what you want to do. Mm, but then there's, say, Flex dashboards, which, yes, um, which is like another great example. Um, yeah. Which you came up with. <laughs> Flex uh, dashboards like, is another R package, of course. Yeah. And you can make these. Um, these interactive like, kind of website-looking things yeah. that tell you maybe something about how much use you're getting for a certain program or like your server. Like I think it's a lot of the time is used for how many people are currently running mm. things on this server. Yeah. Is it about to crash? Yeah, so it, like you could imagine, say, like a document and then you can divide it in half. Like so you have half like lengthways and then half with ways and then you could have say like four quadrants then of your thing and you can have one that shows plots of say like number of people at a site and then another one that shows like say where they're from on a leaflet map or something like that and so you can sort of divide up your document in like a in a way that isn't say like something that would read top to bottom but would read like a dashboard um and i think that's super good people have actually used them for uh, for academic posters as well oh which i haven't is, seen uh, that that's really awesome cool. yeah. yeah that's a great idea yeah. It's, so you uh, just print it out afterwards? Yeah. So or, or is it like an interactive poster? Yeah. So as an interactive poster and also there is a way to get them to to print out as well. There's an R package for it, I believe. And yeah. So I think I, I saw a friend print one and then they had um, a problem because when they printed it, it printed the scroll bar because that was, <laughs> so, so it was kind of That's fun. hilarious. Yeah. But, um, That's a great poster. <laughs> Where does scroll bar? That's good. So we got, yes, we've covered slides, blog down, learner. Okay, so welcome to puzzle time. This is the new section of Credibly Curious, and this puzzle is contributed by Miles McBain. And the puzzle is, what is the output of the minimum or the maximum of null in R? And also, what is the output of NA and false? That is NA ampersand false and NA ampersand true. Are they the same? Are they different? And that is the puzzle for the week for Credibly Curious. All right. So that's it for um, this time. We'll be back, hopefully. Um, yeah. And just to say, as always, please subscribe, rate, and review. That really helps. Yep. Um, you can also email us. Yep, at crediblycurious at gmail.com. And, um, of course, follow us on Twitter mm -hmm. um, at Credibly Curious. Mm -hmm. You can also follow Nick and me on Twitter. That's mm. probably the easier way to get in touch with us. Yeah. Um, so I'm at Trashy Stats. <laughs> it's a great handle. Thank it's, you. Yeah. I'm at NJ underscore Tierney. Um, and also, yeah, you can DM us, us on Twitter. Um, yeah. So we'll take any questions and mm. any feedback, of course. Um, yeah, and that's it for this that's time. Yeah, Thank good. you. Thanks. Cheers.